Welcome to Mysterious Goings On, the podcast about creativity, writing, and mystery. Every week, we talk about all kinds of great fiction and meet the people who write it. We also feature explorations about creativity in all walks of life. Your host, Alex Greenwood, will join you right after this. When I get that down, that's when the book really takes off and it kind of lifts the burden from me as the uh, writer. And indeed they do. They actually do begin to write themselves. And I give them a little nudge left and right and forward and say, hey, you two, what if you two met up? Would you like each other or would you want to kill each other? Uh, and they say, okay, here's our answer. Let's, uh, let's do a little uh, improv. And the characters before my very eyes on my computer screen are uh, improvising a scene and I'm barely, I'm basically just recording it. Author Peter Mack right here on Mysterious Goings On coming up right after these messages. Hey, this is Alex Greenwood. You know, I've been told for years that I'm really killing it in this podcasting game. Um, actually, I've heard that from my friend Jamie Green. Uh, Jamie, I think you're killing it in the podcasting game. Well, I appreciate that. Yes, we are both natural-born killers for podcasting. And of cocktails. So I think it'd be fun, per your idea, that we get together for a drink and a think about some bizarre Kansas City shenanigans, usually murders. I love it. Let's call it going to Killing City once a month, historic murder, pair it with a killer cocktail. Have a great time. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. Regular listeners will recall that my first novel started with a murder on campus, a double murder-suicide to be exact, a true crime that occurred decades ago that was then my place of work. But beyond that grisly event on April 25th, 1950, became the beginnings of my career as a mystery thriller novelist. Beyond that, though, the palace intrigue of higher education has always been of interest, particularly when politics becomes deadly in the hallowed halls of academe. So imagine my delight and excitement when I heard about today's guest. Peter Mack is a writer with two published poetry collections, Aperture and Remembrance of Things Past, Making Peace with Dementia, and a murder mystery novel, Zonker. His plays and dance scenarios have been produced internationally. He was a U.S. State Department cultural specialist in Tanzania and Morocco. My old job, just kidding. He was named one of the 100 <laughs> hot photographers of 2021 by the Duncan Miller Gallery in Los Angeles. He speaks regularly at TEDx events. Check them out. There'll be links in the show notes. International mental health conferences and on cruise ships. Oh, my gosh. And by the way, I took my first cruise a year ago this month. And I got to say, speakers like, <laughs> like Peter make those trips. They really do. The, the view's nice, too, and the food's okay. Oh, that's impressive. <laughs> but let's go back to Zonker. All it took for me to say, let's get this gentleman on the show, was this. Zonker <laughs> answers the question, what if Donna Tart of The Secret History and Inspector Clouseau of The Pink Panther had co-written Truman Capote's In Cold Blood? Peter Mick, welcome to Mysterious Goings On. Thank you very much. Oh, my gosh. Oh, but I didn't scare you off. But, man, I absolutely love uh, not only the genre you wrote in for Zonker, but I, I, I love the setting and the tone. You know, there's that obligatory first question. Was there a certain spark that set you off on this journey? 
Well, certainly uh, one creates fiction from one's factual experiences, and the college is a fictionalized version of the college that I went to. Uh, that happens to be Dartmouth College. Um, I hesitate to say it is true to life because it is um, it is populated by the book is uh, some very unsavory as well as savory characters. Uh, the truth is that my experience at Dartmouth was nothing but absolutely positive, brilliant professors, wonderful friends, great memories. Uh, so I took a little poetic license uh, with uh, a setting that I knew. And as as we writing teachers say, write what you know, and we extend that to take what you know and make what you will with it. So that's what I did. As far as the story goes, uh, Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, uh, a, a true masterpiece of, uh, I would say, true crime, but it is really creative nonfiction in that he, I won't say takes liberties or makes things up, but he certainly dramatizes and makes more vivid a true story. And in his case, of course, he met uh, with the actual persons who committed that horrible uh, crime uh, in Kansas back when. So those two, uh, those two settings and those two stories uh, really set me on the path to writing Zonker. You know, it reminds me I, when I was about 15, 16, 17, whatever, it, one of my friends was going to college in Kansas and I was hitching a ride to go see him with his parents who were going to go up there and see him do a performance. He was a musician. And I remember <laughs> at the time, I thought it was a perfectly acceptable thing to do is so I was reading in the back seat in cold blood. And I thought, you, you know, since we're traveling across Kansas, I'll read in cold blood. But maybe they were sitting there thinking, we got this weird kid reading in cold blood in the back seat. Maybe uh, we should leave him <laughs> at a rest stop. Oh, but, gosh. But, <laughs> but so, you know, before I lose that thread, though, about about Dartmouth and about using it as that setting, have you ever connected with a classmate or or an instructor there or somebody tied there who knows about the book and said, whoa, Peter, man, what, really? I mean, do you have any response like that? Uh, every morning I wake up in fear that I will receive a message saying, how dare you? Uh, <laughs> we, we gave you a scholarship uh, and uh, <laughs> we thought you had a great time there. So uh, anyone from Dartmouth in any way connected to Dartmouth who may be listening to this program, uh, be assured that I did have a great time there and I am nothing but grateful uh, and and totally positive in my memories, but one does what one can with the material that one has. And uh, I guess you'd say I was just having a little fun with uh, with the with the setting in the institution. And I hope uh, people take it the take it the right way. <laughs> I I think they will. I think uh, I think it's a delight. I think it's always fun for people when, especially when they know it's. It's just it's all fun. It's a fiction to think about that, you know, um, you know, yeah, he's uh, that character's in the the dormitory I was in, you know, that kind of thing. That's kind of fun. <laughs> exactly. um, yeah. So I, I was thinking, though, that you took an interesting tack on this the way you wrote it, if I could. You're you're it's first person, right? It is first person. Uh, the narrator is um, by and by uh, somewhat identifiable in that uh, I actually identify him by name at the end and uh, i don't know if this is the right time to me to give away who that might be 
Uh, so I'll just leave it at that. But as far as the characters go, I wrote two novels before this one, and neither one was published. And I thought, gosh, what a shame. Uh, 20, 22 or three characters just sitting there. Yeah. Um, I didn't want them to die unreported deaths. So what I did was I said, for my third novel, let me think of a genre that has a ready-made appeal such that people say, oh, a murder mystery, let me check that out. And um, so for about six months, I studied the genre. I studied the form. I, I looked at where the first corpse falls and at what point and the sequence of the second corpse and the suspects who build up and the focus that comes to be on a certain suspect and oh what happens that suspect falls aside as being a suspect and we have to re-examine our clues uh well that was fascinating in itself so what i did then was i took this template and i uh set down the particulars not from beginning to end because i like to leave my ending up in the air even to myself uh, so that the story will ultimately suggest the ending for me. And as far as those characters who were sitting there moribund in unpublished novels, I just took them all and made them all suspects, and in some cases victims, potential victims, uh, in a murder mystery. And I sort of had a lot of ready-made material, therefore. And uh, in one sense, I had sweet revenge, such that I could take characters who hadn't been approved for publication and put them into a publication, which into a book, which ultimately is now published, um, and uh, wove a story involving all of those people whom I had already come to know. Never waste anything is how I feel <laughs> right. about it. Right? That's right. That's right. I absolutely love that. And you, did you ever, does this, okay, let me ask you this then. Does this preclude, what if, what if Zankar becomes huge and, you know, you best, multi bestseller, and then people are like, I need more Peter Mac, I need more. Would you pull that out of the drawer or is the fact that you put them all in, or money of them in, in this book, does that kind of kill that shot? Funny you should say that because up here in the mountains of Colorado where I'm spending my summer, um, I get very uh, inspired. Uh, and one of my inspirations to, to take this novel, uh, take the, in, the specific narrator of the novel and several of the characters and uh, proceed with them into what might be very literally a sequel. Indeed, yes. Yes, it isn't that the best when you get that that inspiration yeah. hits you. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and these, yeah, yeah. Th and these characters are telling you where they want to go. That's right. That's right. And <laughs> and they they announce themselves and they reveal themselves um, when you're writing something, prose or a play. Uh, they re reveal themselves in the way they speak. So I'm very particular about uh, distinguish their distinguishing their speech patterns, their particular vocabularies, their cadences, their uh articulation rhythms and when i get that down that's when the book really takes off and it kind of lifts the burden from me as the uh writer and indeed they do they actually do begin to write themselves and i give them a little nudge left and right and forward and say hey you two what if you two met up would you like each other or would you want to kill each other uh, and they say, okay, here's our answer. Let's uh, let's do a little uh, improv.
and the characters before my very eyes on my computer screen are uh, improvising a scene, and I'm barely, I'm basically just recording it. I love to hear that. Um, uh, when you were first talking about your process a little bit, I thought, oh, wow, he really hammers all this out in detail, but you do leave it up in the air. You do have some things that you let the characters take you on the journey with them. I absolutely love that. And uh, kind of the, gosh, to sound crass, the A-B testing of which, which way could this go? With these two? <laughs> yeah. I hate to say that, yeah. but you know, that's, it's part of the craft. Yeah. I think sometimes yeah. I really, yeah. I really think it is. You, you, you base, but you started your published career at least as a poet, correct? That is correct. Yes. I've written poetry all my life for the family, rhyming couplets for birthdays and celebrations of various kinds, anniversaries. My father had Alzheimer's uh, disease for the last 12 or so years of his life. And um, after he died, I was asked uh, by someone to do a uh, to write something for an Alzheimer's fundraiser. And it was left up to me as to what I would write. So I wrote a prose recollection and in memoriam kind of thing. And that seemed kind of dull. And um, but I didn't want it to make sad to be too sad and tragic uh, and lament lamenting. So what I ended up doing was writing uh, in my favorite form, which is uh, rhyming couplets. And I wrote about the journey that I and my sisters uh, took with my father when he had Alzheimer's. And I ended up writing what turned out to be a a book length poem and uh and and i did it for the fundraiser and it went very well and i said well i wonder where else i could give this and it, it occurred to me that the tedx talks might be a good uh place to uh to pitch to so i did that and i i got many positive responses and have now done this as a live presentation boiling down uh, 40 50 pages of poetry to 18 minutes which I then memorized and uh, presented in TEDx talks, which, as you mentioned before, are uh, viewable on uh, on YouTube. Remembrance of things present, making peace with uh, dementia, and uh, and then it became a published book, uh, illustrated with my own uh, photographs. So uh, that was and continues to be a very grand experience. Uh, a, a a nice remembrance of my father and honor, honoring of my father when I stand up on stage and deliver the piece, I feel like I'm channeling my father. So it's a nice way to, uh, so to speak, stay in touch with my dear dad. The next book is um, called Aperture, and that is a collection of more recent poems, uh, quite a few of them that runs to about 120 pages. And uh, last year, I um, it's like uh, a composer. Uh, one season, he'll be writing uh, symphonies, and then he'll write string quartets. And I just was inspired to spend most of last year writing poetry, some of it in rhymed couplet forms, and some of it in free verse, and some of it in blank verse. And I found that the short form enabled me to touch upon many more things that interested me uh, in a and and then do my thing with uh, them with one poem and then jump to another thing with another poem. And the aggregate of all of these poems became this uh, overall uh, whole unit of a book. Now, are you at all a Proust fan or was it just more of a handy title to kind of play with that title? 
Well, I would say both. I have not read all seven books of Remembrance of Things Past. I have read the first one. <laughs> I'm a great fan, a great admirer. I'm actually in awe of uh, what Marcel Proust did. And in looking for a title for mine, I thought I'd take one little twist and make it instead of Remembrance of Things Past, Remembrance of Things Present, because in my father's present tense, his past was diminishing by the day. And what our remembrance became, it became much more focused in that little instant of present time, which while being absolutely ephemeral is at the same time everlasting since we're always in it. So as my father's past and in fact his future began to diminish, uh, we realized that the way to meet him was to join him in this present moment and not worry so much about the past, not so worry so much about what might be coming in the future. So it became a very much a remembrance, but it also became a very much more than otherwise a present tense experience. I was struck, Peter, by this. I watched the TEDx and then I realized that you have several and I kept saying, you know, and it was, uh, and I, I caught parts of other performances of it and you know kudos yeah. of course i mean you know as a former you. actor you know your you know your audience you know the points and all those and i'm not trying to be too cute here but with uh swan's way you know the first volume of proust uh remembrance of things past uh, this it occurred to me there's a line he says people uh, do not die for us immediately but remain bathed in a sort of aura of life which bears no oh, relation yes. to true immortality but through yeah. which they continue to occupy our thoughts in the same way as when they were alive it is as though they were traveling abroad oh, and the, yeah. the connection i'm making here is that you are on cruise ships and you're delivering these things and i, I don't know i, I know that's a, a weird connection to make i guess but that's what i thought of when i thought about this wonderful thing you did for your father and this this collection you did for him but then but then there you are traveling abroad and yeah. his memory is right there with you that's right and it's a spreading of the memory it is the uh, engaging each time with each new audience it's engaging a new group of people and bringing them into my present moment while expanding that present moment to a recollection of the past and speaking of triggers and spurs to recollection of course with Proust it's that Madeleine that he tastes and it is a key that opens up this door into this wild blue yonder of the past which he admits he would not have had that experience without not just looking at or holding that little biscuit that little cookie but the taste of it was an instantaneous spur to a seven books worth of memories um and and a poem can be that quick instant uh, spur toward a much larger experience, which I think is one of the reasons that I very much enjoyed writing those poems. They were like little Madeleines for me as I used them for my own recollection. And then anyone who reads one of these poems, I would hope, would re receive them like the taste of a Madeleine on, on the tongue. It's amazing uh, from the taste to, to the ol the olfactory, just a certain odors. You know, yeah. this, uh, some people it's yeah. a, uh, smelling ba baking of bread, it, it, just whatever it might be. Um, well, I find they say that, that, that 
the two things that are most redolent of past experiences are indeed the olfactory, a smell, and music. And uh, the phrase, uh, they're playing our song, is uh, uh, spurs the memories of uh, romances uh, in the past. 100%. I, I, I have a terrible weakness. I think that gets me more than anything else. Uh, I hear certain songs and, and uh, yeah, yeah, I'm definitely taken back. Um, yeah. And there, there's just so many things you can encapsulate that with. So uh, I, can I just ask you about the cruise ship experience for a little bit here? How yeah. did you get into that? How did that start? And work, how did you feel about it before? And had you cruised before you started speaking at cruises? That's the first question. And the second part of the question is, yeah. how did you feel about actually going and being part of the experience of the cruise? Right. Well, my first experience on a cruise ship, actually, it was more of a transportation from uh, England to the, to New York. It wasn't so much a cruise. This was on the QE2, the Queen oh, wow. Elizabeth II, uh, uh, three or four years after I graduated from college. And I got a nice student rate. And um, I sailed from New York, uh, from Southampton, England, uh, via Cherbourg, France, to New York. Now, it was going to be a five-day cruise. It turned out to be a 10, 11, 12-day experience because um, in Cherbourg, as we were preparing to leave the harbor, we were in the midst of a gale force storm. And uh, the harbor pilot uh, up there on the bridge advising the captain said, no, we can't, uh, I can't possibly let you leave in this. And the captain looked at his watch and said, hey, we got to get to New York. We are leaving. So he overruled the harbor pilot, which I didn't know a captain could do, but indeed he did it. And the mooring cables were cast off. And as the last cable, this is kind of a long answer to, <laughs> apparently I could give you a very simple answer, but I'm giving you a colorful back at the beginning uh, anecdote. Uh, as the last mooring cable was about to be uh, un unleashed, uh, we were hit broadside with a gale force wind and it blew us uh, across the the, uh, the channel there of the dock and that mooring cable snapped and we were adrift without power or any kind of control. The tugs couldn't control us. So we um, we didn't know this. We were all in the uh, in the bar just waiting for us to um, head out to into the Atlantic. And we felt a little soft thud. Well, long story short, what that thud was, was us crashing into the opposite concrete dock, the pier, and as it turned out, uh, ripping a 40, and actually a 70-foot uh, gash in our hull, 10 feet above waterline. Uh, well, obviously, we did not leave for New York that day, and we did not leave for four or five days, during which the, the French Navy uh, welded on enormous uh, iron metal plates onto the gash, and then we did head off to New York and uh, just parenthetically hit uh, the edge of a hurricane on our way, uh, all the while fearing that we were going to lose all of those new, newly welded plates. OK, that's how I started. My it's a great answer. I, I just hope you left. <laughs> did you leave Cherbourg with a different captain? Because that what an idiot movie made. But yeah. anyway, go ahead. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, 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 I do know that captain. He may that might have been in his last cruise. He may have been replaced before we even sailed. I don't know. But that was it for him. Uh, but it was not it for me uh, for cruising because I absolutely loved the experience. Even the seasickness uh, mid-Atlantic for which I took a shot uh, in the backside and uh, was able to survive it quite nicely. 
Um, but um, uh, decades passed before I, I, I got on another ship. And um, is, actually, it was uh, a request to speak at an Alzheimer's, uh, uh, people with Alzheimer's and their family and caregivers uh, chartered a space on the and a Holland America ship. And I was asked to speak during that. And that was about uh, four years ago before COVID. And I had such a great time. This was a Caribbean cruise, um, uh, Fort Lauderdale round trip. And I had such a great time. I said, wow, you know, I've been on the QE2. I've been on Holland America. I'd like to do more of this. And um, uh, my grandfather uh, was an ecologist and a botanist and did a lot of work up in Glacier Bay, Alaska. And um, I thought, well, uh, I have that fund of information from my grandfather. Uh, I think I will pitch myself to cruise lines who are going up to Alaska uh, so that I could talk about my grandfather. And lo and behold, uh, uh, celebrity uh, cruise lines uh, uh, accepted my pitch and put me on uh, the Celebrity Millennium. And last summer I did five cruises up to uh, from Vancouver up to Anchorage and down back. And um, I, uh, I talked about my grandfather and I talked about uh, glaciers in general and I talked about the history of Alaska. And uh, I said, hey, this is just, you know, let's, let me do more of the same. So this year, in fact, in uh, three weeks, I'll be heading back to Alaska to do some more cruising on Viking. And in the meantime, I've uh, I've been down to the Western Caribbean and Mexico talking about the Yucatan Peninsula and the Mayan civilization and the conquistadors and all of that. And I did a transatlantic a couple of months ago and uh, a Balkans and a Scandinavian cruise. In each case, I sometimes I sometimes talk when I know enough about the destination, and um, when it's uh, a special interest uh, gig, I talk about photography and I talk about writing your own life story, memoir writing, and um, so I combine the special interest with the destination, and it seems to be a going concern for me, and I'm just delighted. I get free passage and free food and shore excursions and all of that i don't make money but i i get to i get to go to places i not otherwise would have gone to so it's great i really love it uh, as i said a year ago basically i was uh, speaking of glacier bay i was on um, royal caribbean serenade of the seas and we went and uh just a delight and it life-changing in a lot of ways i i i, yeah. I used to be rather i gotta be honest i used to be rather i'd never cruised before rather dubious of it because i Kind of just heard about you know well the, you know sickness on board and things like that and you know you just hear yeah. about it experience it was yeah. completely different it was a lovely lovely experience lovely yeah beautiful. i i i i had some hesitation um uh, my grandfather uh you know for him alaska the inside passage glacier bay was really sacred territory and with all of these cruise ships going up there you know i viewed that as a well certainly they're polluters uh yeah. they're doing better all the time uh, and they're restricting the number of ships that can actually go into Glacier Bay and the others just go by the mouth of it. Um, so I, I was somewhat wary uh, uh, of going up there in a big fat ship. Um, uh, but again, like you, I found it to be uh, a revelatory in that everybody on the ship and especially to a place like Alaska, uh, were going not for the party experience, for right. the, you know, the good times and the drinking and all of that. They wanted to go to Alaska because it was such a fascinating, romantic, faraway 
uh, stimulating place to go to. And they were a rapt audience uh, out on deck as we uh, stood before the Hubbard Glacier and in the theater as, as I gave these talks. Um, so I just can't wait to go back. Um, the Caribbean cruise we were on, you know, it wasn't all party time and drinking and merrymaking. Uh, people were there to relax and have fun and take dips in the pool and all of that. But I have I have met on these cruises some of the most interesting people in in walks of life that I perhaps never uh, knew much about. And, um, you know, I hand out my business cards and we all vow to stay in touch. And that's usually a little bit more. Uh, uh, wishful thinking that actually happens, but I have stayed in touch with several of the people, um, and, and a couple of them want uh, me to consult with them on writing their own memoirs, so that'll be ongoing. Uh, so you're with people for seven, ten days, and it's uh, it's magical, it's almost dreamlike, and then we all disperse, and it seems like everything is over, but a few threads are maintained, and, and that keeps things going. It does. I um I. I also had really never paid any attention to the thoughts of some of the excursions I took where I actually hiked in rainforest, you know, and yeah. uh -huh. Sitka and Juneau area. Of course, I just, I don't know if you saw the, the recent uh, erosion of the house in the <laughs> Juneau area. Good, good gravy. I saw, I saw it, that. It's, it's scary. It's really scary to your point about your grandfather being an ecologist. It's, uh, it's, uh, yeah. I, I did too wonder what are we doing to this last frontier, or, but it, but I do agree with you. I think the ships are very cognizant of of their role and their responsibility. At least the one I was on, yeah. it was brilliant. We actually got had good weather through into into the bay, and uh -huh. I mean I just can't even. But anyway, we're not here to talk about cruises. I know, but I just had to bring that up because um, uh -huh. I'm also always excited by travel when it comes to writing. And I and yeah. I, in the time we have left, and I boy, it's gone so fast. I mean, fascinating guest. <laughs> yeah. Things go fast. But <laughs> but in the time we have left, I'm just curious. Um, does does travel stimulate you? Uh, with, with your writing or and if so um what about photography too does that play a role in stimulating your your the writing bug let's call it yeah that's a great question it's something that i i'm i'm well aware of the mutual benefits of um visual art and verbal art now i've always um been a photographer for my family and friends and whatnot and i would make christmas collages and all of that uh about 20 years ago I thought, well, you know, I love this writing thing, but um, I've always been interested in photography and very much uh, actually adept at graphic designs. But I was never one of those kids in uh, in high school who was in the art crowd. I, I was not much good at drawing or painting. Um, uh, but 20 years ago, it dawned on me that uh, if I take a picture, one five hundredth of a second, I've got my picture. I don't have to draw it. I don't have to sketch it. But what I will do creatively, in addition to just creatively taking the shot, is um, put the picture through Photoshop and through Lightroom, which are the two software uh, tools that I use. And every single day of the year, and it's almost 365 days of the year, I write from, say, 8 in the morning until 5 p.m. And that's my, I forgot which hemisphere the linguistic side is, but I switch hemispheres and at five to six thirty or seven every single day, I'll take a picture from my vast archives of all the pictures I've taken over the years. And I'll say, hey, that would be fun to work on that picture. And I spend an hour and a half, two hours in Photoshop and Lightroom uh, tweaking colors, 
making color picture into a black and white or ver vice versa, sharpening focus and doing all kinds of uh, editing things uh, to make the picture like a painting. It's very much I feel I'm, I feel like the picture is at my easel and it is just a, a, a template upon which I can um, impose my artistic, my creative vision. And every single day of the year, I take that picture and I send it out um, by email to a, a growing list of uh, friends and acquaintances and family members. And if anybody listening to this program would like a new picture almost every single day, uh, feel free to <laughs> uh, email me, me at p-m-a-e-c-k at gmail.com and I'll put you right on the list. I, he's laughing because I held up my hand, listeners. Uh, um, <laughs> Peter, I, I definitely would like that because I saw on your website, your excellent website, there's some, there are some things I think, right, uh, there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's the website. It was a little uh, intimidating for me when I was prepping for this, too, because um, you're so accomplished in so many different fields artistically. And I, I I imagine this, let me put words in your mouth and then you can quickly tell me I'm wrong, but uh, okay. you don't, I don't, I get the feeling you do, you do not like to be labeled as either just a photographer, just a poet, or just a novelist. Uh, who are you when you tell people what you do? Um, for a long time, my business card said Peter Mac writer. Uh, in the last 15 years or so, it says writer slash photographer. Okay, now subdividing writer when i uh from the age of about actually in fourth grade at the age of nine our teacher gave us a creative writing assignment and she said you all are going to write a short story we said great and then we looked at our blank page and we said great but what do we write and how do we start and she said don't worry about it go home cut a picture out of a magazine write a story about that this picture itself is your story and all that all that you have to do is extract the story and write it down. So I did that. I took a picture uh, from Life magazine of a, a police horse that had fallen into the Hudson River and it was being winched out. So I said, wow, that's a great story. So I wrote the story and I wrote it from the point of view of the horse and I took it into class and I read it in front of the class and everybody just loved it. And the teacher loved it. And she said something which I didn't understand at the time. Uh, but she said to the class, you know, Peter Mac wrote a good story uh, and a very specific uh, thing that he has is a style, a writing style. And at age nine, to be told that I had a style, I didn't know what the heck that was. I figured, well, if I've got a style, I'll find out what that style is. And when I grow up, I will become a writer. And from the age of nine, uh, my path was set and I became a writer. Now, as far as photography goes, uh, I just was snapping pictures uh, all my life. And uh, as I said, uh, I came to realize that I could be a visual as well as a, uh, a verbal artist. And, um, and, and, the, and the Remembrance of Things Present book is a combination of the two. And, uh, and, and I think there is, it, there's a very interesting cross-pollination between the visual and the verbal, which is to say, I guess, between one hemisphere of the brain and another uh and it's not never the twain shall meet it's that uh, when they do meet amazing things can happen it does and you you do make it sound awfully darn casual but it's not to find someone who is quite adept at not only the written word 
And then the hardest part, in my opinion, of the written word is to write. Anybody who can write good poetry, oh my goodness. I mean, seriously. I, I, I fancy myself a decent writer of prose, but if I try to write poetry, yeah. I, I, I look like quite an idiot. So you have that <laughs> and the photography going. And you're so you're also a, a lecturer and you're, you're a traveler and you're doing so many things. And, and you know, and I, I feel a little bad. We didn't really go too deep into Zonker, but folks, you've got to do it. Um, the, the characters, the depth, it's very evident that Peter Mech is pulling from, uh, as he said, the moribund characters and giving them life. And uh, mm -hmm. I'm telling you, if you're, if your reading material lately has been moribund, Zonker is something you <laughs> should check out. It, consider it to be a automatic external defibrillator for boring reading, because this is really a fun <laughs> read. It's very good. You can use that blurb if you like, Peter. It's it's on me. You know, I was uh, but... just going to say. I was just going to say. Uh, can I put that in quotes and slap you it sure, on my Amazon you sure, page? You sure <laughs> can. Maybe when I write now, and I typically when I it takes me forever to get around to all my guest books, but when I do, I typically write a review. I'll try to remember to put that on there too. But but Peter, <laughs> <Okay>. uh, Peter, <laughs> Mac, Peter Mac is a delight. He's a writer with two published poetry collections. Of course, the novel Zonker. He's an accomplished photographer. You might just catch him on an ocean cruise too uh, and if you do you should say hello and you should also do what he said there'll be a link in the show notes to go to his website but also email him and get on that list for his art peter i'm going to throw it back to you but i have just learned so much and i know i've just scratched the surface but i really wanted to thank you for being here on mysterious goings on i really enjoyed meeting you hey the pleasure has been mine and my gratitude goes out to you for giving me this opportunity just to have fun talk i love to i love to write but i also love to talk about writing and anything else so it's been great coming up next time right here on mysterious goings on it's dr frank malinowski husband to author judith sanders for i'm gonna throw you a fastball here you ever met one that you know of <laughs> not yet, or at least not in reality. <laughs> now, I will say that, that Judith, you know, in, in coming up with this plot, had to do some research. And if you call seeing people on YouTube acting about how wonderful it was to be a serial killer, she has met them in that virtual reality of the YouTube uh, universe. Experience the magic at the Kansas City Renaissance Festival. Join the revelry for seven adventure-filled weekends. Visit the all-new Mermaid Cove Adventure. Enjoy new rides and game. Stop for a drink at the all-new House of Dragons Pub. Find unique handcrafted gifts at over 150 shops with clothing, herbs, jewelry, toys, art, and more. Experience 22 stages of performing acts and musical entertainment, plus full combat live armored jousting and a live chess match. Daily contests with prizes, different themed events each week. Tasty food for everyone. Come for the magic, stay for the memories, Saturdays and Sundays, September 2nd through October 15th, plus Labor Day and Columbus Day. Discount tickets available at Hy-Vee, Dillon's, Costco, Menards, and KCRenFest.com. Also, don't forget, listeners, Enter to win a pair of tickets to the Renaissance Fair. All you have to do is click the link in our show notes to send us an email. Don't forget to include your name, phone number, and email. Contest ends October 7th, so hurry!
Thanks for joining us on Mysterious Goings On. Be sure to follow Mysterious Goings On wherever you get your podcast and never miss an episode. Don't forget, you can get the links to books and other things mentioned on the show at mgopod.com. Until next time, keep reading. Keep reading.